Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with our Mockingjay read-through. We are back for 2023. Happy New Year! Yeah! And we're looking at chapter 20. So Chris, can you give us a recap of what happened? Boggs is mortally wounded by the explosion, but as he dies, he reprograms his hollow to respond to Katniss. Jackson orders the squad to retreat, but their paths backwards and forwards are blocked by pods, and in the chaos, Peta attacks Katniss, overcome by his hijacking. When Mitchell tries to stop him, Peta throws him, which activates another pod of a razor wire net that kills Mitchell. The survivors flee from a toxic black ooze into a residence nearby, where they have to restrain Peta, and Boggs uses his final words to urge Katniss to kill Peta and go on with her mission. However, when Jackson orders Katniss to give her the hollow, Katniss lies and says she's on a mission from Coin to assassinate Snow. Guns are drawn, but Cressida plays along with Katniss's story, which alleviates the tension momentarily. Now as the head of the unit, Katniss leads the group back out to the now ooze-covered street. She invites them all to leave if they want, but everyone stays as they make their way further into the capital until they find another apartment to rest for the night and plan their next moves. I'm just like, I'd leave. I mean, I wouldn't be there to begin with, but you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose if you're ordered there, I don't know what happens to you in District 13 if you disobey that mm-hmm. order. Yeah, but are they disobeying orders? If Yeah, it's, it's yeah. good questions. But that's not where we're at in the podcast episode yet. So let's first... No, there's still more. Oh, there you is? You just interrupted me. Oh, sorry. Oops. <laughs> A Capital News broadcast comes on, showing the destruction of the building that they were in earlier, and the newscasters pronounce the entire party dead and the group wonders what to do next. Peta, now awake and having watched his earlier actions, says the obvious next step is to kill him. But no, Peta, we don't want to do that. No, Peta. <laughs> Poor Peta. But I appreciate his offer. Right. Which we'll get into more yeah, in the next chapter. Absolutely. Obviously. But talking about this chapter, what are your striking moments? Well, for one... We definitely have to talk about how Katniss so quickly reacts to Boggs's injuries mm. and thinks about how she wants to be able to be with him as he dies. The yeah. same that she had with Rue and others. Mm-hmm. And it's just another great illustration of Katniss's virtues. We can really see the value that she places on people's lives here. That... She still feels the need to be of service to Boggs in any possible way that she can as he's dying. There's not a kind of cold calculation of, well, Boggs is dead now, and what's the next step for us? It's still, what can I do for him mm-hmm. in these last moments? Yeah, it's not, oh no, is something else going to happen and I'm going to die? You know, she, she's not thinking about that. Exactly. So Which like, is very Katniss. Totally. And, and we've talked about how Katniss is such a strategic thinker at times as well. And that's totally true. But I think that even more than her strategic aspect, she has this compassion mm-hmm. that is so central to her character. And this is a really great moment for that. Absolutely. And I love that the, the phrasing of it was she was trying to prepare herself mm. to repeat the roles that she had played with Rue and, and the woman from District 6. It was really making me think of 
how emotionally exhausting those things would be. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) for people who actually do these things in real life, you know, like there are people who their jobs are to engage with people before and while they're dying, which, yeah, sounds very taxing. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, Katniss is just like, ah, this is what's happening. I'm, I want to be there. Absolutely. I was also really struck this read-through in a way that I never have been before, how Katniss's first order for the unit is to go back out the way they came to where the Black Ooze was. Mm-hmm. And people start questioning this immediately, but she is proven right that the wave destroyed many of the pods in that area, Mm -hmm. helping them to move forward in a a more safe way. And it shows her strategy Mm -hmm. and it shows her experience as a victor, that she understands the ways, not only that the pods can be destructive, but also the ways that they might interact with one another. And I think that that comes from her experience, which is something that I never really put together before. Mm. Um, and, and I appreciate that because, you know, we, we talked in the last few episodes about how her and Finnick in particular were like, oh, look, we're going back into the Hunger Games. And this isn't just about us being re-traumatized, but it's also about us being more prepared to deal with that. And here we see how that is the case for her. So yeah, I just thought that was a, a, an interesting moment that I don't think I would have caught unless I was doing this stro- slow read through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the... She's able to so quickly figure out what is the wisest course of action and things mm-hmm. like that, uh, which show why somebody like her won her games. Uh, Absolutely. Because a couple minutes longer and they would have all been blown up by the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely very quick thinking on her feet. Unlike, yeah, maybe some of the... People from District 13, they're trained to follow orders. They're trained to deal with certain types of circumstances and look at the hollow and read the map and figure out uh, how to maybe activate it from afar. But when they're in the moments of trying to run through a, without knowing where everything is, you know, it's, it's a different situation. Absolutely, yeah. But... Speaking of thinking in the moment, one other thing that Katniss does, thinking in the moment, that I find more questionable is when she tells Jackson that Bog said that Jackson would help her, Mm. which is very manipulative. (laughs) Uh, You know, when, when we've talked a lot about how Katniss, when she, you know, was saying that PETA sees all the negative aspects of her personality, one of the things is manipulative. Mm-hmm. And in this case, she is being manipulative. I think that that is a intense thing to put on Jackson, considering the danger of the mission that she wants to approach. And the fact that it is something that doesn't have the backing of the system that Jackson has respect for mm-hmm. and, and, and follows so yeah, that was just a moment that I was just like, ooh, Katniss, that's... Uh... I think it was help her with the hollow, though, not just with the mission. Because she was like, if anybody doesn't want to continue, like, now's the time to turn back. It's totally fine, you know. True, but I, I'm just, you know, this is kind of like a, another POV kind of thing. But thinking through Jackson's perspective there, 
it totally. seems like she probably had a good relationship with Boggs. If you're the second in command of Boggs, someone who's probably held in very high esteem by much of the military, and then you hear that there's a secret mission that Boggs wanted you to help out with, mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine Jackson going back to camp after hearing that. It would at the very least put a lot of pressure exactly. on her. Yeah. So, yeah, that was just another moment that stood out to me this time. The last one is when Caster noted how there was no aerial footage in the Oh, yeah, the I know. I love reel. that. Really, really great moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my nerdy way, reminded me of the idea of, like, you want your party to be diverse. You know, you don't want four warriors. But if you have a warrior, a rogue a wizard, you know, whatever else it might be, like having multiple kinds of expertise means that you're going to benefit from all of those different realms. Mm -hmm. And having someone who looks at this newsreel in a completely different way than Katniss does shows here the kind of information that you can get from just being there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I actually had that one on for one of my touch points, I like the aspect that it's mentioned, right? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, that is just a different point of view than somebody who doesn't have that experience would have. Yeah. It's not something I would notice in a situation like that, but these photographers are going to notice. But I also was kind of like, hmm, wouldn't they just have drone cameras, <laughs> you know, in the future? So it kind of like distances us from this future in in a way I wouldn't expect I mean sure like this was written what 15 years ago or maybe maybe a little less but drones were definitely a thing and so it's it's a type of like well we should think that we could apply this sort of thing um unless because of how controlling the government is they wouldn't want something like that because if it could get into the other people's hands you know like if they're controlling all of the hovercrafts it's a lot harder to take down a hovercraft than it is to take down a drone Mm -hmm. camera and then it could give people in the districts access to technology they don't want them to have that's the only way that i can think of it without it just being a misstep (laughs) absolutely for the writing which i mean they are super controlling, so that that is definitely a possibility. Yeah, yeah. That whole segment also kind of stretched my disbelief a little bit as a reader of how could they have no footage of them escaping? You know, it, it was just a little hard to believe, but you're making up a good, yeah. a good point that maybe there's a difference between us now and when this was written. You know, I got a drone camera for Christmas yeah, this year. I know. Thanks, mom. Uh, <laughs> Not that you asked for it. No, I but just it got was one. Given to yeah. You. So, yeah. like, that shows the accessibility of this kind of thing <laughs> yeah. in our modern day. That maybe in tw- 2005 or whenever this was written, it wasn't the same. But yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. One was that I know that the books are definitely more graphic than the movies are. Mm-hmm. But to read it, I was reminded like how much more when it was describing things about Boggs, you know, and, mm. and the aftermath of his legs getting blown off. Yeah, I mean, just the the text is describing the carnage that, yeah. that, that is there. And very small reactions that Katniss has to it because she has a reaction, but she's also focused on what she's doing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it's not spending a ton of time there, but it's still mentioning it, which I know that like some people don't like graphic depictions of violence, whether in text or or on screen. And I think that there can definitely be a conversation about when it's completely unnecessary, like when it's supposed to add entertainment versus when it's supposed to be realistic. Mm. Because if it's just like, oh, gross, you know, like oftentimes like horror movies, the point is a shock value, not necessarily the realisticness of the situation. Yeah. But when it's for a story that involves a war, to have it missing, I think would be a really, almost a disservice to the narrative. Mm. Because, well, and, and I think even, you know, if all war movies had really graphic depictions of what actually happens to the people. So like the movie Hacksaw Ridge, it had some very in-your-face depictions of what happens when people have a leg that's blown off or things like that. You might have to hack or saw through it. <laughs> no, that would go back into the horror film that's true. part. Um and it's just like if war movies actually showed these things happening over and over again in a two-hour period. I don't know. I just I wonder if that would help de-glorify war in the mm. way that it serves to be almost military propaganda, right? Yeah. Join our ranks and become a hero like these men. But if you actually see what's happening to people when they are attacked with yeah. weapons uh, or just are in warlike conditions you don't see a yeah. lot of filmic depictions of trench foot mm. you know or these other awful awful conditions that soldiers had to face and, and other people had to face mm-hmm. in these war fronts yeah so just thinking about that yeah and then the other one that i was really thinking about is when katniss was considering bogs and thought suddenly i'm sure that he and maybe he alone is completely on my side Hmm. and i just thought that that was such an interesting statement considering that gail and finnick are there too yeah i don't know if like part of it is because gail has had his communicuff and been you know they've been at odds on some Mm -hmm. of where they stand on moral issues and he's been more aligned with district 13 and and that hierarchy which katniss doesn't really like to follow Mm -hmm. so i don't know if that's part of that but then there's like finnick he would be on your side but maybe she's like maybe he would be thinking of annie too or you know maybe i'm just not sure where the the sentence was coming from yeah which i thought was really interesting but then (laughs) basically directly after it these people are pointing guns at each other, right? And that means some people are pointing guns at Jackson, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know if Gail or Finnick were in that group, but I could definitely see them in that group. I don't think it was just random other District 13 people Absolutely. who were under Jackson. Yeah. It was probably either anybody a part of the film crew or if they had guns. I'm still not totally sure on that. Mm-hmm. And if not, it was Gail and Finnick. Yeah. So it's like shows that they really are on her side and then Cressida lies to support her. Mm-hmm. And 
then Gail says that he's following Katniss, even if the others don't. So mm-hmm. I, I just thought it was really interesting that she has this thought. And again, I don't know if that if part of that could be going back to her just her trust being broken so many times with Hamish, with Peto, with what it even means to be a victor. And now she's back in the games, you know, that she just has reasons to doubt everything and everyone particularly when she's worried about everything going on. So it's, it's very understandable, but then at the same time, we see the evidence that it's not true. Yeah, it's fascinating for that to happen in this chapter when we see so many other people showing their commitment to her. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me wonder if there's an element in which Katniss sees how people choose to spend their last moments as one of the few things that you can fully trust mm-hmm. because for those people there's less strategy involved it's just them dealing with what their main priorities are mm-hmm. and so boggs choosing to be on her side in these important ways in his last breaths is one of the most powerful ways that anyone can communicate that to katniss mm-hmm. and i mean even with with gail thinking back he didn't tell her about Peta's second interview. Mm. And she was upset with him for that. So after Boggs communicating very clearly to Katniss, yeah, I agree. I think Coin wants you dead. Mm-hmm. You know, that these are meaningful things to somebody who, yeah, has been lied to Absolutely. and used so much. You know? Yeah. But when we go into our next section, which is from another point of view, thinking about the perspectives of people other than Katniss in this chapter. Yeah, one of the ones that I was thinking of was Holmes and Mm. his really quick reaction to Boggs' injuries and how he immediately starts to put on bandages and a tourniquet and, and, you know, does all these more kind of medical ways of responding. Katniss's immediate response is to be there with him as he's passing. Mm -hmm. Holmes's is to start, you know, acting like a medic. And and from what I understand, Holmes isn't specifically a medic. He's a sharpshooter. That's the reason he's in this squad along with everyone else. Mm -hmm. But I think he'd have medic training, right? That's why they had the thing with them. Yeah. Maybe I just forgot about that. But either way, I think that, you know, he's he's clearly had some training in Mm -hmm. these. He knows how to use these things. But he also very clearly has a cool and quick mind in being able to respond to this chaotic moment mm-hmm. so quickly and so effectively to work on that way. Because just thinking about my own response in that kind of situation, like being able to immediately take in the seriousness of a situation and address what the needs are of this injury while all this other chaos is happening with other explosions, this giant wave coming, people yelling mm-hmm. is just, there's must be so much going on there. And yeah, just for his reaction to be that intense, I think was something that made his character stand out to me for the first time mm-hmm. to think about what it must take, what kind of either personality or training it must take to have that wherewithal in that moment. Yeah. But the other perspective that I was really curious about in this chapter was what the 
capital citizens must be thinking about PETA and Katniss's relationship. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. If they had seen the attack that PETA has on Katniss here. Mm-hmm. And all of the different narratives that they've been given over these books about this relationship, how so much of their significant interest in the Hunger Games over the last couple of years was about this love story. And then Katniss becomes this rebel leader as Peeta is urging her to stop. Then Peeta is kidnapped or taken, and then he's put forward in these propos as a rebel as well. <laughs> and then he attacks Katniss now and then they die and it's just like (laughs) what are they thinking you know what I I can only imagine that even the citizenry that has been so socialized to accept everything they're told and not to question must be at this point confused at least (laughs) at all these twists and turns and questioning what are their motivations? It can't just be that Katniss is this evil rebel or that Peeta is this love-struck person because they're saying all of these changes and then, yeah, this attack on her that isn't seem to be explained, at least in the newscast that mm-hmm. they watch. Yeah, I can just imagine how confusing that would be for these people who really have invested so much into this into these narratives Mm -hmm. and like thinking about some that have been such staunch supporters of them maybe if they wouldn't speak about it out loud Mm. but still secretly shipping them and kind of on their side or at least more sympathetic to the rebels because of Katniss and Peeta. And then you see this and you're just like, what is happening? Or more critical of the capital because, Mm -hmm. and more willing to question that because who are all the people who've been removed from these homes that Katniss and crew are moving through, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. there must be a large population of people who've been displaced and who are suffering in new ways that itself is going to lead to more unrest. Yeah. And, I mean, what if you're like, oh, that's the building I live in, and then you see it destroyed, (laughs) and (laughs) it's just... That would be a lot. Yeah. Although, who knows if they'd even be able to tell, since so many of these buildings look alike, as as I'll talk a little bit about in our touch points. (laughs) (laughs) And you have the the wave of sludge Mm, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But also, I mean, I don't know that... Effie would have had access to something like this, but what would she have been thinking? Yeah. That would have been so strange because she actually knows Katniss and Peeta. Yeah. And while she might very well be like, oh, of course, that's Katniss, when she sees the propose, her saying, if we burn Hubert with us, you know, she'd recognize that girl. But she also would have recognized, like Katniss did, Peta's mental anguish when he mm-hmm. said that they'd be dead by morning mm-hmm. and now seeing another version of that an even more intense version of that attacking Katniss yeah mm-hmm. I can imagine the despair that she's yeah. feeling and then to think that they're dead yeah and to think not only that they're dead but that in his last moments Peta was so 
tortured in some way mm. that they made him lose who he is. Yeah. 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 That's a really great point. Did you have any other perspectives you wanted to talk about? Yeah, one of them is Finnick because we see him trying to revive Masala mm. and carrying him along as they're running from this deadly wave. Mm -hmm. For me, when I was reading that, it was just such a flashback to the 75th games mm. where he revived PETA yeah. and also was carrying PETA, well, Mags and then PETA, as they were running from this fog. That, oh, that's a great point. Yeah, was going to kill them all. So yeah, I was just thinking about him and even though, again, he doesn't have much dialogue, you know, he, he's not the center of what's going on in this chapter, just the little snippets we get of him are just really powerful. Mm -hmm. And so I was just thinking about how Finnick as a person has a lot of trauma. Yet in this circumstance, he kind of like you were saying about Holmes, stays very level-headed about the mm. different things that are happening and hyper aware of what's going on. He's the one who noticed the wave coming and yelling to the others about it while well, he's trying to revive someone you know you yeah. would think of all people Holmes Katniss and Finnick would be most distracted mm -hmm. yet he's so completely aware that other threats can be coming makes the calls of what to do and when to stop trying to revive Masala and throw him over his shoulder and everything and, and get to safety and so yeah, I was just thinking about if there's any part of him that is like consciously telling himself to hold it together, or if this is just the adrenaline state that he's in that focuses very easily on what he needs to do mm. and what the smartest thing to do is. Or yeah, if as soon as they're inside the apartment, if internally he's like trying not to crumble, you know? Because when's the last time he had somebody over his shoulder running, you know, his mentor died. Yeah. So, yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm thinking about how he's just constantly thinking about other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even when his life is in danger, and then it has the just really brief sentence. He just pita's gas mask mm -hmm. over his face. Like, just constantly paying attention to helping others yeah it's just so impressive to be in such dire circumstances and thinking about other people yeah especially when you consider how finnick is first represented in the story as a self-involved vain superficial person mm -hmm. and in these important moments he's the opposite he's mm -hmm. so focused on everyone else and how core that is to his character is just really powerful yeah absolutely and it's just so important to 
who he is that it does make me wonder what's going through his mind Mm. in all of these horrible (laughs) situations and if even when he stops to catch his breath is he even thinking about himself at all Mm. or is he thinking about oh no what if i don't make it back to annie you know like i could see that too so yes i was thinking about our dear dear finnick i know and then the other person that i was thinking of their pov is cressida because the capital reporter named katniss gale finnick boggs Peta and cressida like they named her which yeah is fascinating considering they didn't name anyone else on the film crew Mm -hmm. but they named her and so that probably means that she had made somewhat of a name for herself yeah prior to leaving with the rebels and so i was just thinking about what that would feel like to her because i'm sure there would be people in her life who knew that suddenly she disappeared Mm. and they see all of this now excellent (laughs) 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 propaganda coming from the rebels could put two and two together and be like oh well suddenly she and a couple of her associates disappeared Mm. i wonder but and maybe she has you know specific filmmaking techniques that are very visibly hers you know Mm -hmm. like the michael bay helicopter shot (laughs) jj abrams lens flare (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe maybe there's something very iconic but even if not even if it's a smaller group of people who know i i still was wondering what it would feel like for all of the capital to know because if they do win this war if everybody in the capital isn't just killed off, you know, like what would your relationships be like with mm. any of the people that you knew previously, especially since probably the only people who are going to be a bit more focused on the industry that you work in would be people from the capital. Mm-hmm. And now you've been publicly pointed out to be with with these rebels and of course she would know that snow would have a target on her back but now any person that she could come across in the capital would have a target on her back in a different way than if they didn't know who she was you mm-hmm. know not not that i think she would make any different choices but it would still maybe feel scary in a different way it would still maybe make you feel anxiety or exposed yeah in in a way that she hadn't previously but then on the other hand maybe she's like good i'm glad that people know that i am with this side maybe that'll encourage some people that i couldn't trust enough to tell what i was doing before but maybe weren't as far gone on the tyrannical side of (laughs) of the capital you know like maybe it could encourage them to think especially if they really liked her work or they'd worked with her before or something like that yeah or you know i could imagine it being inspirational to someone who thought well i'm not a soldier how could i help the rebellion Mm -hmm. and seeing someone who 
is helping out through their art, through their skills, to also make a significant impact, an impact enough to be named alongside people like Katniss and Gale and mm-hmm. Peta and Boggs. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. I'm like, oh, what are you thinking, Cressida? Yeah, yeah. But when we move on to our next section, our favorite happiest section, touch points. Yeah, I mean, so- this might actually be my favorite section, even though it is extremely depressing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason we have it, despite how awful the information we're bringing to light is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, this section is where we compare things that are happening in this chapter to things happening in our world. Yeah, or things that have happened yes, in definitely. my case. Uh, <laughs> Almost because, always. <laughs> unsurprisingly, I'm going to talk about some history. Um, so I've mentioned a few times, I think, uh, kind of touched on ideas. Touch pointed on? I touch pointed on ideas of distrust in government and conspiracy theories and things like that. And, mm-hmm. and that kind of, I was reminded of that here for Jackson because... Jackson hears from Katniss that she's on this secret mission. Yeah. And she's clearly very skeptical skeptical mm-hmm. of this being the case, but she's able to at least be partially convinced through Cressida and Katniss's, you know, discussions about it. And I don't think that would have been the case had Peta not been in the squad. Mm. Because Coin bringing Peta into the squad, even though it is clear to everyone in the squad it's a terrible idea, yeah. is something that shows people like Jackson that there are secrets, that there mm-hmm. are things going on behind the, se- the scenes that are untrustworthy in some way. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> it's like something's going on exactly. here. So yeah, that just made me think a little bit about the ways that distrust in government in our society have gone along with historical context where people have seen ways in which the government is not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. So one of the best pieces of evidence for this is Pew Research, which does all sorts of amazing polls and has done for decades. And so since the 50s, they've been asking, how much faith do you have in government, essentially? And from the 50s to the set to the early 70s, it was usually about 74% of people had a lot of faith in government. That's cute. Yeah. But in the early to mid-70s, that starts to fall. And it's <laughs> never been more than 50% since then, except for right after 9-11, because, you know, war brings patriotism for some reason. I mean, we use the word Watergate or changing it to whatever gate. Right. In everyday language for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, because the 70s is this time period in which all of the ways that you should not trust government become more and more clear. Watergate being a great example of this. Um, But also the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, really showed so much of the American public how uncaring the kind of Cold War mentality was for society. Uh, either American or other societies. And the people who protested it saw very firsthand what lengths the government would go to to try to suppress that protest. Absolutely. Uh, The assassinations of people like Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King and Malcolm X. The assassination of John F. Kennedy in the 1960s, which 
you know, raise so many questions. Um, and one of the reasons <laughs> for that is because the CIA report, or really a Senate committee report about what happened was really, really basic in ways that made people think that there must be a conspiracy going on. Mm. It was basic because they didn't want to tell Americans about all the shady things that JFK was doing, <laughs> like trying to assassinate Castro. Oh, uh, yeah. Because <laughs> then people would lose faith in their government exactly. in a different way. Yeah. Uh, so they put out this, you know, rubber stamp kind of report that no one believes because they are trying to hide something. What they're trying to hide is not necessarily that they helped assassinate JFK. <laughs> yeah. It's something completely different, but again, it starts to raise these questions. But yes, and as you mentioned, Watergate becomes the major turning point because afterwards the Church Commission is this committee that is meant to investigate all of the ways the government has messed things up. And, and so I mentioned, I think last week or the week before, about MK Ultra and the mind yeah. control experiments. Those came out during this time period as well as other CIA and FBI kind of misconduct. And so, you know, this becomes a time period in which we, it's so clear how the government is up to no good. <laughs> and so people... They solemnly swear on the Bible <laughs> yeah. they're up to no good. Yeah, so trust in government falls and remains very low for a long time and conspiracy theories start to become more and more popular. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it just I thought this was an interesting parallel to that. Yeah, where well you get to people being like, oh, 9-11 was an inside job. I don't believe that that was true. But I can understand why people believe that it was true. Particularly considering that four years earlier, in 1997, a set of documents detailing Operation Northwoods came out where the CIA was considering having a false flag operation to kill Americans and blame oh, it on yeah, Cuba. yeah, I think we did talk about this on the podcast yeah. before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> we know that the American government at least thought about killing Americans <laughs> in order to start a war. Can never put it past <laughs> us, but doesn't mean it's true in this case. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, let's be real. The American government would never take out economic capitalist centers that that's we can pretty much Good say point, that yeah <laughs> world trade centers no other <laughs> random citizens sure maybe yeah <laughs> i did have one other touch point uh which is also historical which i was reminded of when they go into the second apartment and they see that the layout is the exact same as the first apartment they went into Mm -hmm. And this reminded me of a lesson that I actually just first put together last semester where I was talking about the post-war suburbanization in the United States mm -hmm. and how all of these new suburbs start to spring up. Actually, within about 20 years, the amount of urban environment in the United States goes from like 10% to like 25%. Like it massively expands the amount of space that's taken up by urban or suburban buildings. Mm. And the vast majority of that is because of these new suburbs, these new big open space, you know, car enabled suburbs. And most of those suburbs or many of those suburbs were built with this kind of uh, model home mentality where maybe you'd be in this community that has five or six different models that you can choose from, but there's thousands of these homes within small distance of one another that all are using the same type of layout. Mm -hmm. And this is done, obviously, for capitalist purposes. Oh, hey, 
this is going to make it so that we can build cheaper. Uh, we can build, you know, hundreds of units a day. These we things. don't have to continually pay architects. Exactly, right? Mm. Everything is, is you know, more done more cheaply, more quote-unquote efficiently. But that huge scale also came with environmental destruction of, you know, untold magnitude. Of course. Um, but culturally, it also connected with, you know, this is in the 1950s, with this culture of conformity that exists within the United States. Hmm. Of a political, racialized, gendered, and capitalist conformity. Sounds gross. Yeah, basically. That a typical, you know, to, to be a part of one of these communities, to have a model home in one of these communities, is to have a husband who's working, a wife who stays at home as a housewife, more than two kids typically, you know, because you have middle class income. To, 2.5? Yeah, the 2.5 kids. Um, you're going to be white for the most part. Many of these communities had uh, racialized restrictive covenants legally saying or contractually saying non-white folks can't live there. And any deviation from this was seen in really suspicious light. So, yeah, obviously the racial aspect is very, very clear, but the gendered aspect is also really important because women are expected to have a life completely devoted to the home, but this is, of course, a decade after many of these same women were in working jobs during the war. Mm -hmm. And now we're being told that that's not their role and that's not an availability for them. And so this helps to spark things like the feminist mystique and uh, new waves of feminist thought because women are being told that they have a very limited selection of choices available to them and they start to chafe against the isolated, lonely, patriarchal lives that, you know, they're told they have to conform to. Of course, this is also all happening within the context of the Cold War as well, where the idea of subversive elements of anti-American activities <laughs> are hugely popular and, and massively uh, parts of cultural anxieties that are happening. And so, yeah, this idea of not wanting to stand out with your own home, a home that looks different from the homes around you. No, no, no. I want to show that I'm an American patriot just like everyone else. I have the same ideals, the same values. I'm, you know, part of this general culture and being able to perform that in every way possible uh, was such a part of that. And no one's going to paint their door red at that time. Exactly. And so thinking about how the capital has a similar architectural element, how the ways they build their homes also has an element of conformity is really interesting because the ways that fashion exists in the capital, at least, seems to imply a kind of individualism. Look at all the wild ways that they can use color and dyes and fabrics to build these extravagant uh, visual looks doesn't seem like it's necessarily conformative, but if that is the norm and everyone has this pressure to conform to that norm, there really still is an ideal of conformity, even if that conformity is to something that, you know, the people in the district see as ridiculous. And I think that this small detail of, oh, the homes all look the same, is, you know, when I think about this through that historical lens really illustrative of one of the core elements of capital society, which is this requirement to conform and not to question, not to speak out, not to stand out, but instead to be a part of the mainstream perspective because being outside of that has 
social and possible legal legal repercussions. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. I think so. (laughs) That's why I brought it up. (laughs) But what about you? What are your touch points? Yeah, so I only had two, and one of them we already talked about with the aerial footage. But the other one I was thinking about is when the emergency broadcast just Mm. flips on the TV. That was kind of reminding me of if you have your phone set to get Amber Alerts Mm. and things like that, it'll just alert you whenever... Um, and I know there are some apps that will do things like that for earthquakes or yeah. whatnot, um, obviously. Clearly, <laughs> I live in California. <laughs> but thus far, we don't have where it's socially acceptable for the government to just be controlling our devices mm, without yeah. our consent. <laughs> not that it doesn't happen. <laughs> it, it's just it's not socially acceptable in yeah, the same way. That is interesting. But, yeah, here, it's like, the capital is literally controlling the technology and imposing their messages on anyone who has a TV. Mm-hmm. Where we see it in the districts, there are mandatory viewings of the games or the announcements of the quarter quell and things like that. But it's it's just so great that in the world that Suzanne Collins made it shows that that tyranny is going to also apply to the top one percent in Pan Am as well it's it's not only for the people that they're oppressing it's the people that they're privileging but they're still oppressing them in this one way so yeah I just I found that really interesting that it's so known and they have established it so firmly that it's not seen as an invasion of privacy. It's not seen as a negative thing, as something to be concerned that the government is controlling people in this way. And I think it also does demonstrate something about the culture as well in the capital of how little so many people think critically about their own government and the messages that are being told to them versus just believing whatever the capital puts on the screen is true. Mm. Not, not that I think that everybody is, you know, on the same page with that. Obviously, you see these capital rebels and even people who aren't rebels, some of them would be more trusting and than others, I'm sure. But at the very least, none of them are protesting um, the propaganda that the capital government forces into their homes whenever they want to. So, yeah, I just thought it was interesting. That is really interesting. It makes me think about concepts of private property. Because mm-hmm. you mentioned the Amber Alerts and things like that. Those go to our devices. Like, there's an idea of it being privacy concerns because this is my phone, my TV, my, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. But... There have, of course, been instances of public broadcasting alerts, you know, whether on the radio or even, um, you know, during the Cold War, air raid sirens that were Mm. put up throughout major cities. You know, here in Los Angeles, we still have a few of them that are extant, that are still around in society that people walk by all the time and don't even realize this was done in case there was an air raid during, you know, or, or a possible nuclear bomb coming. 
But there's a difference because those weren't connected to private property the same way. But in the capital, if this is a television set in your own home, yeah, what what control do you have over that? And how private property and privacy concerns interact with systemic capitalism, I think, are interesting mm-hmm. questions that arise from that. Totally, because, like, theoretically, we could, you know, even if we didn't have to opt into Amber Alerts, mm-hmm. we could turn our phone off mm-hmm. and that alert wouldn't turn our phone back on right obviously they could create one that would mm-hmm. and that's what they've done in the capital yeah. the tv's off and then the government turns it on <laughs> which is so creepy but also the government's spying on us anyway yeah. if they want to <laughs> yeah. yeah it's fascinating yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's all necessarily bad. Like, there could be times when it would be incredibly useful. Absolutely, yeah. Um, especially in emergency situations. It gets very dicey, though, because an emergency situation is one thing, but how that emergency situation is communicated is another, mm-hmm. and that's where politics and propaganda come in. Totally. Uh, because... Yeah, there is an emergency situation happening in the capital at this time. There are invading forces. Yeah. How it's communicated is, you know, a, a different thing. Mm-hmm. So. Totally. Although so. personally, like, it that also highlights, you know, the evils of capitalism. Because while, you know, I don't want the government spying on me, I care a lot less. And I find the corporate spying on us to be way more insidious and dangerous to society <laughs> than that. As an American citizen, you know, if I was in Myanmar, obviously it wouldn't be the exact same. Or I wouldn't want the military government there spying on me. Well, but... I would say as a white passing person, it'd be very different if you were Muslim living in America. True, or, true. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the privileges that I have. But mm-hmm. at least there are, you know, systems of civil liberties and things like that here that are in conflict with the concepts <laughs> of government spying, where in the corporate world, not really. <laughs> well, and I mean, part of it, part of the things we know are happening, or it's like, oh, they're selling my information, mm-hmm. but we would rather access the website or, you know, whatever yeah. it is than not. Give me those targeted ads. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely want to buy this board game based off of a 20-year-old video game I played in middle school. <laughs> Thank you for showing me this Kickstarter. <laughs> Actually, the target ads just kind of make you sad because all the time you're just like, I just hear from the other room, how dare you? And I'm like, oh, it must be a targeted ad again. <laughs> That's accurate. It's like, do you want to participate in this depression study? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Instagram. <laughs> me complaining about having cramps. I open my phone. Look at this medication for cramps. I'm like, oh, you're creepy. Go away. No, I'm all stocked up on tampons. Thank you. (laughs) Tracking your cycle. (laughs) I know, but this time it's businesses, not creepy men. I mean, they are creepy men, but you know, it's it's not. But it's the creepy men who created the algorithms to stalk you. Yeah. Oh, fun. But we digress. (laughs) Us? (laughs) <laughs> Why don't we move on to our wonderments? What do you have? Yeah, the one that stuck out to me also had to do with the design of the apartments because <laughs> why did this apartment have mirrors on all the walls? 
What what is the intention there? That doesn't sound in any way remotely enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, I I would get like motion sickness. Exactly. The vertigo that comes from that what is this aesthetic choice? Is it, again, just like a tribute to vanity of people always wanting to see themselves because they're capital citizens? The architect that planned the model heard once that mirrors make a space look larger and just thought that this was a good idea. <laughs> totally, exactly. Although, yeah, I could totally see it being like a capitalist ploy to be like, you can see yourself from every angle. Mm-hmm. That means you're going to want to go in for more cosmetic surgery, have more diet pills, and, you know, Absolutely. all of these things. Yeah. Get your hair cut again. You can see it's getting a tiny bit longer in the back, <laughs> you know. But what are your wonderments? So my main one is this is actually the first time that I thought about this question. And it is, did Coin want to both kill Katniss... By sending PETA mm-hmm. there and discredit PETA mm. because he is now on video footage attacking Katniss and pushing someone off him which led to their death like Katniss has a lot of influence in Penham which Coin knows and it seems like she's clearly threatened by mm. Why would she not be threatened by PETA? Because he also has a lot of influence. And he was the one that she originally wanted to be the Mockingjay. Yeah. Clearly she finds his oration moving or captivating, uh, impacting. And so this could be just a very convenient way to both discredit him and if he dies in the process that happens whatever she wouldn't care uh, necessarily and also kill Katniss yeah and I mean PETA could be seen as the savior of District 13 you know maybe he Mm -hmm. saved more lives in District 13 through his warning absolutely than anything else that's visible since most of the other rebels who died you know, are from other districts. Well, and it's like, she is sending people, I mean, I know it's a war or whatever, but like, as it might feel to people in District 13, she is sending their loved ones to die in this war, and PETA helped save their loved ones, you know? To physical harm against him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Something that we don't know if Coin would be willing to do, Mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, yeah, it was just something that... That's interesting. Yeah, it came to me that it is, yeah, very interesting. And, you know, Finnick is there, too. He has a lot of sway in in Penem, especially in the capital. And if PETA attacks Katniss and then Finnick kills PETA to protect Katniss, you know, that's also, you know, throwing him into that mix Mm -hmm. too. So yeah, I just, I was wondering if it was more than only about Katniss, uh, that decision. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But why don't we go into our final section, which is intentions. What are you taking away from this conversation or the chapter that you want to apply in some way to your life? Yeah. I'm thinking a lot about, our conversations about Castor and Holmes and Finnick and the ways that they respond to these situations and bring their expertise and their training into them. And I think my intention then is to be a little bit more mindful of trying to appreciate and acknowledge 
the skill sets and expertise that people have outside of my own. You know, I'm, I'm in academia, so outside of the ones that, you know, my job is to pay attention to, mm-hmm. you know, of research and writing and studying and test taking and these other kinds of elements. And so I have, you know, many friends who are in very diverse kinds of industries and those types of expertise may not be the ones that I am as familiar with or easily able to understand, but yeah, I think that that reading through this chapter makes me want to be a bit more intentionally appreciative of those kinds of expertise mm. and um, and try to explore them because, you know, these people have developed them over years and years of work in their fields. And just because it's a different field or journey than I took doesn't mean that it's, uh, you know, it's something that I shouldn't be paying attention to. I get it. Just because it's boring doesn't mean that you should not care. Exactly. These <laughs> boring people who are involved in the arts and creativity, unlike <laughs> me and my book learning. <laughs> what about you? What's your intention? So mine is just based off of Katniss trying to prepare herself to be there mm. for Boggs. Not, not that I'm intending to prepare myself for... Um, me to die (laughs) yeah like a a sudden death in in a situation but yeah just just to spend some time more thinking about how to prepare to be there for someone whether whether it's a death situation or you know just something else that is sad or emotionally draining yeah it's it's something that even as my own parents are aging and mm. and the different things that that come with that you know it's it's you know probably a wise thing to to be thinking about these things especially when you can see certain things coming trying to yeah figure out what what's a good way to emotionally prepare yourself for things that you know will be difficult yeah uh, because Katniss didn't have the time mm-hmm. to prepare herself for those things um but she was trying to do it anyway, even yeah. momentarily. And to prepare yourself to be there for someone else as well. You know, not only deal with the difficulty of your own, but the difficulty for others involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's nice. Well, I think that is going to wrap up our conversation for today. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we are going to be reading the next chapter, which is chapter 21, where... Katniss and friends go to the underground level. That was that was the going through the pipe sound. You could hear it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I didn't have to explain it. No, I definitely didn't think that you were talking about coins or something. And we do intend to still have an episode coming out every week uh, this month, but we are moving at the end of the month, and so... Like, we are physically moving. Yeah, so if things get too much, just be fair warned that we may have to skip a week or, or something. So just FYI. Follow us on Instagram and you can find out more. I haven't even been posting there because I've been too busy. Whoops. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) But follow us anyway.
You can find links to our website, our social media, and the Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll join us on Patreon, become a supporter of the podcast at our new revamped tier levels. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.